Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk, Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. The place to be for the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Yesterday uh, we lifted the lid on what is going on out there on the streets of this country. The way that there's a certain lawlessness in the air, the way that people are a little bit edgy, the way that people are kind of walking around expecting something to happen, not being entirely sure what it is going to be. Uh, We know that bike thefts, for example, are now happening uh, every single minute of every single hour of every single day uh, and pretty much 95% of of them uh, never get recovered. 95% of them never even get investigated. The police this morning are saying that they're going to attend every single home burglary. I'm not quite sure how they're going to manage that, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. But we've also got constantly uh, pieces of video that fall into our laps where you've got school children fighting in the street, uh, where you've got people fighting on the beaches. And I don't mean uh, in the Second World War sense. I mean just at sort of holiday resorts. We've got people uh, being mugged uh, on a regular basis, people stealing watches, people on scooters, uh, knocking people over the head, nicking handbags, all that sort of thing. Uh, We've got people having all sorts of stuff stolen from them. And the question I've got for you this morning is... Are we now a lawless society? Is it now impossible to get back the law that we used to have control of? Is it now an impossibility to go back to civilization? Because it seems to me that an awful lot of people are living under the yoke of what is basically anarchy. 0344 499 1000. We're going to talk to Norman Brennan this morning, former police officer and director of the Law and Order Foundation. He's already put a couple of videos out today. Uh, one of them shows a load of school kids fighting uh, over in Essex outside of school over there. We've also got a rather distressing video of a dog attack. We've been hearing about dangerous dogs for an awful lot of the time this year. There's more dangerous dog attacks than ever. We've actually got some footage of one, uh, which is really quite disturbing. We're going to give you a warning on that before we play it to you. But also, we're going to talk about a great many other things as well. Isabel Oakshot is also here. Uh, She's got plenty to say about all manner of stories. Basically, uh, she's going to talk about the AI threat. We're going to talk about the migration problem because it could add 16 million people to our population. And you've got to say, if that's the case, that's not going to make things any better, is it, for heaven's sake? Lord Matt Ridley's going to join us because uh, lockdown benefits, of course, have been found to have been a drop in the bucket compared to the cost. We're going to talk um, about the rising temperature of the sea. The Guardian has put a story out today uh, saying that the rise in the sea temperature, surface-wise, is off the scale. Well, it isn't. 
It's not off the scale at all, unless you've got a very small scale. It's gone up by 0.1 of a degree in something like 15 to 20 years. So we'll be interested in that and asking why it is that people are constantly trying to make out uh, that we are in danger from climate change, because we simply are not. Al Mehmet is here from Migration Watch. We'll talk to him. Rod Liddell, of course, as well. Uh, there's a fantastic story that says the real north and south divide in this country has got nothing to do with geography, but it's got everything to do with food. And it's going to say to us, it's going to tell us that if you're in the north, you're more likely to like Greg's. If you're in the south, you're more likely to like Pret. Is that really true? 03444991000. Prince Harry, of course, uh, has departed these shores as far as we know. He's not in court today. He did the last two days in court uh, and it clearly took its toll on him. Uh, he's clearly a very troubled young man, although he's not that young anymore. Uh, he basically said he did what he did for Meghan. I think we all knew that. He also says he doesn't really know. Uh, whether he was illegally tapped, whether his phone was hacked. He doesn't really know. So why did he do it? I'm going to ask the question. Has he been taken advantage of by his very, very well-paid barrister, who, of course, has made an absolute fortune and will continue to make a fortune over the next couple of weeks? But we're not expecting to hear a verdict on the case, at least until September. So the lawyers are all doing terribly well out of Harry. He must be the perfect client because he wants to sue everybody. But I don't think it's doing him any good, do you? 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let's get it on. I've got this message from Ian, and, and I'll say this once only, uh, possibly just because Jeremy Carl's a West Ham fan. Uh, he says, if you don't start with the feel-good news about West Ham, me and the family of 1,000-plus are going back to the BBC. <laughs> Well, well, congratulations to West Ham for winning last night. Uh, I was with Jeremy Carr watching the first half and he was very nervous, uh, but very happy that in the end they did triumph against Fiorentina. It was a bit of a testy game, uh, but it's always nice to see a British team doing well in Europe. So I take my hat off to any West Ham fans. I think there's some kind of uh, open top bus parade uh, today. Uh, we've got some breaking news for you before we go anywhere. Uh, there's a knife attack in France. Six nursery school children have been stabbed at random while playing in a park. Uh, somewhere near the French Alps. A lone man armed with a knife attacked a group of children aged around three years old at 9.45am French time this morning at a park uh, near a lake. Uh, the source is claiming that uh, the unknown suspect has been arrested thanks to the rapid reaction of security forces. So um, it all feeds into this rather febrile world that we now seem to be finding ourselves living in. I mean, what sort of maniac goes around stabbing three-year-old children? Thankfully, we haven't seen that here yet, but... Uh, who knows what's coming, is what I would say. Let's talk to Norman Brennan, former police officer and director of the Law and Order Foundation. Norman, good morning to you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Um, we, we started this conversation yesterday, Norman, with, with some of our um, listeners and viewers about how an awful lot of people are coming up to me these days saying they're feeling kind of stressed out, they're feeling tense, they're feeling a bit kind of just edgy about everything. You know, they're getting on trains and there's people having arguments, there's people having punch-ups in the street. There's a, there's a sort of sense that there's a bit of lawlessness going on um, and it's all kind of slipping slightly out of control. What do you think? I completely agree. You give a good overview and analysis of the criminal justice system in your opening. Um, whatever crime you talk about, whether it's uh, knife crime, robbery, burglary, uh, assault, theft, you name the crime, it's out of control. Mm. Um, I've never seen things so bad. I mean, I, I, I sort of analyse it to... Uh, do you remember when fuel used to go up? Over the years, we all get irate. How dare they put 5p uh, on the fuel? Mm. Now, 
it's mortgages, it's food, yeah. it's utility bills. It's almost a parallel universe to each other. That is how bad it was. Mm. The criminal justice system, it's not just burglary or robbery that's out of control that the police can direct all its resources or sufficient resources to. There are so many different crimes that are out of control. The police do not have the resources and have become fire brigade policing. Hence, the public never see them. And as you rightly say, they don't feel protected and reassured. And that's a damning indictment on the police service in Britain and the criminal justice system. But the police have broken. This government have broke the police. So you can't blame the police for something that they're not responsible for breaking. Yeah, but is it the, the government that's broken the police or have the police broken the police? Because I know that you've spoken many times about um, your loyalty to individual police officers. The rank and file guys are still doing the best job that they can do. But the management of the police has somehow been politicised. It's somehow been kind of diverted away from crime and diverted towards other things. Well, well, absolutely. I, I keep saying, as many others do, just before I left policing, Theresa May under David Cameron and Sir Tom Windsor, they reduced the police service by 22,000 officers. Now, if you rejoice, you, re, you reduce an army, for example, by 22,000 officers, and they've only got, say, 130,000, and you send them out to battle... Mm then what chances have they got? It's a bit like the England rugby team going out and playing France with only 15 players. Yeah. The chances are you're going to lose that game, and not only are you going to lose it, you're going to lose it badly, and you're going to end up very exhausted and probably hurt for all the tackles that you make. So those 22,000 officers that we lost, I'm afraid it was about then that Britain's police lost the streets. And you're right, so many senior police officers now are telling us how bad the their police of their police services or their police forces yet all of these officers the ones that whizzed out up the ranks did they not have their eyes open mm. did they not have their ears open didn't they see what's happening and it's all right for them now to sit on their uh, nice uh, oak chairs and comfortable leather chairs saying how bad things are they've reached the pinnacle of their careers but unfortunately they did it at the cost of failing the police forces that they whisked up the ranks in. Yeah, and I think that's an, a, a problem in lots of different areas of public service as well, Norman, where the, the job has ceased to be a job that you do because you want to do the job well. It's all about self-aggrandisement, it's all about promotion, it's all about getting yourself up the ladder, the greasy pole, you know, and, and kind of whatever you do uh, in the job is a side issue. Absolutely. The retention rate in policing at the moment, the, the loss is at 72%. Mm. What other industry or company in the world, let alone Britain, would see such a lack of retention and not address it? I mean, a, a Met officer that I know um, re resigned last week. He's ex-military. He's outstanding. And he's the type of person the Met need to keep. Mm. And when he was resigning, one of his bosses said, do you know what? It's my job to keep you in the job, to talk you out of leaving. He said, you're a decent man, you're a hard worker, you're popular with your colleagues, get out there, do well for yourself. He said, sadly, and I'll excuse the language, he said, policing have become a shit show. Now, if that's what some senior managements feel, and they would have joined when the job was a yeah. vocation, when you wanted to join to make a difference, so many are joining yeah. now, thinking this is not the job for me. I'm on my toes. I'm going to become a train driver, get a job elsewhere, earn double the money, no stress, no grief, no criticism, and 
hopefully decent bosses. Yes. No criticism of you, Norman. I'm just going to apologise for, for the language when anyone was, was, was upset by that. Um, I imagine that it's pretty about as accurate as you can be about it, though. Um, but let me tell you a couple of stats that I've got in my hands this morning. Liberal Democrats have just done a study. Uh, they've revealed it in 2022, 65,809 bike theft cases across England and Wales were closed without a suspect even being identified, a shocking 89% of total reported cases. So now, if you're going to nick bikes, and bikes now are quite expensive machines. They're no longer that kind of, you know, cheap old... Uh, uh, probably stolen bike that I bought at Brick Lane in the sort of 1970s, which was a racing bike worth about 10 quid. They're now worth thousands of pounds. And people, um, I don't even know if they insure them or anything, but but basically, when you talk about 89% of cases not even being uh, properly investigated at all, uh, you do think there must be something wrong. Just over there is my new bike. Thank goodness it's still there. Still there? You want to check? <laughs> I've got a brick wall. I can see it from here. I've yeah. got a brick wall. I've got a new gate that I've had to put up there. Right. Six months ago, somebody come over into my garden and they stole my bike. It's cost me £550 to replace it. Hmm. Outside is my van, also one of my cars. In the last eight months, the car has been broken into twice. The van has been broken into once. Hmm. We have now got, we've now got lighting all around there. I've got a brand new gate, cost me 300 quid. And all of my neighbours now are looking at putting up electronic gates. Now, £500 is what it costs me, yeah. which means that I have had to pay out money that I'm working so hard to pay because, as we rightly said earlier in the programme, we've got so many bills to pay. And these criminals, they walk the streets, yeah. they walk the alleys, days, nights, every day of the week. They steal our bikes, they break into our sheds, they steal our cars, they break into our vehicles, and we have to pay for all the repairs. Yeah. We have to pay for all the replacements. And when the police, thank God they occasionally do, arrest someone and put them before the courts, they walk away mm. laughing. Yeah. Well, I'm not laughing. No. I'm sick of it. Absolutely and like right. you, Mike, and like millions of others, the criminal justice system's in a crisis. The courts can't cope. I don't see a police officer. And in my retirement years, and don't forget, I was a policeman myself mm. in London for 31 years. I thought I would be able to live in some sort of tranquility and in safety. And like many of your listeners and millions of people in Britain, I don't feel safe on the streets no. of Britain anymore, travelling on the transport. And what an indictment of our criminal justice system in Britain. Absolutely right. I mean, I worry for my two teenage sons more than I do for myself because I tend to drive around more than I'm on public transport. But my kids are on public transport all the time. And I'm constantly thinking, you know, what's going to happen to them today? Because you just don't know. I've got a tweet here from a guy called Dennis uh, who's showing a picture of a guy standing next to a car. He says, around 7pm tonight, this guy slowly walked up our drive and tried my car door, then slowly walked away. He was also surreptitiously taking photos of houses and cars. We don't trust the authorities. We have no nearby family and we are old. Any advice? I mean, I read this, it. this is happening everywhere. I, I saw that. I saw that tweet myself. I, I, I see people's tweets every day of the week. I, I'm quite high profile on social media and I despair at what I see. Mm. Uh, I mean, one, one of the reasons that I think I was asked to come on your program was about these dreadful dog attacks. Yeah. Um, dog attacks, Mike, have gone up 34% uh, since 2018. In a five-year period, they've gone up from 16,000 to 22,000. When you're attacked by a dog, and as you saw in that dreadful uh, video... Well, that we've got the you. video. I want to show it, actually. Before you carry on, let's have a look at this video. We're going to warn people that it's a very graphic video, uh, so please be aware uh, that we're giving you a warning here that it is quite a frightening and quite 
a staggeringly kind of stark video. Have a look at this. This is a warning that viewers may find the following video disturbing. This is happening in a park in sort of south east London. You can see dogs leaping up at sort of almost head height and then chasing a woman over the sort of to a hedge where she falls down. We're not sure exactly. Um, I don't know whether Norman, you can tell us whether we know what happened to the to the woman involved in this. But you know, it looks horrendous. It looks frightening. It looks dangerous. Uh, these dogs are running wild. I don't know whose dogs they are. They're not on a lead. There's three of them. It's absolutely dreadful, isn't it? It, it is that actual incident happened in Lambeth in the Lambeth Park. Right. There's a male there with three dogs, uh, all not on a lead, or oh, maybe one is. Yeah. Um, that female absolutely, um, she's absolutely terrified, runs away, right. attacked by the three dogs. She receives a significant injury to her arm, and she's still in hospital. Right. Last month, a 77-year-old woman was killed by a dangerous dog in Surrey. Yeah. Uh, three months ago, another woman walking dog was killed by dogs. Two days ago in Margate, uh, there was an attack. A dog was killed, two people were injured, another dog was injured. I mean, these dog attacks to be quite honest with you, are so serious that people don't quite understand the injuries. If you have chunks of your arm or leg or face ripped off of your body, you require plastic surgery. And plastic surgery will go on for years. I've had a number of operations, reconstructive operations, and a bit of plastic surgery. I promise you, it's no fun. It's painful. And when you see these people that are finally arrested, put before courts, even when they're out of control, dangerous dogs have killed someone, they get such a derisory sentence. Yeah. And you compare that against all the crimes that you and me know of, that we're the victims of, and all these people that destroy our lives, destroy the law-abiding public's lives, walking away from courts, almost laughing. It's like a circle that we just cannot break. And all you and me do, Mike, mm. with all your other presenters, Julia, Kevin, you name it, for the last 10, 15 years, all I've done is said, look, this is how bad it is. This is what we need to do about it. What is it with our, with our parliament, mm -hmm. our MPs and our governments, that they just can't understand that the public are frightened, the police can't cope, the criminal justice system is broken, something needs to be done. It's about Harry, it's about Lineker, it's about Schofield. We have distraction politics in Britain, and if only they could just take a grip of the things that concern you, me, and millions of law-abiding public that actually vote these people mm. in, maybe Britain will start picking itself up and become great again, because the great, sadly, is missing at this moment. Very well said. Norman, thank you so much for talking to us. Norman Brennan, former police officer, director of the Law and Order Foundation. Um, this video is quite extraordinary. Um, we'll probably play it again later on. We'll, we've also got another video to show you uh, of some school children getting involved in a sort of mass brawl just outside their school in Essex. Um, we want to talk to you about all of this because we think it's important. We don't think that it's trivialising crime. We don't think that uh, it's pointing out the obvious. We think this is a very big service we're currently committing to because we're going to not stop here. We're going to continue to talk to politicians about what they're going to do to make the streets of our country safer for ordinary people to walk down without worrying about getting beaten up, without worrying about having something stolen from them uh, and without fear.
they should be able to walk the streets of their own country. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, we've got much more to do this morning. We've got many more stories to talk about. And of course, uh, we'll be bringing you more uh, from that lawless Britain sort of catalogue that we've got of terrible events that seem to be going on, uh, which people are getting very, very worried about, more increasingly worried about the kind of lawlessness and the anarchy out there uh, on the streets of this country. But before we do any more of that, let's talk to Jenny Bond, royal commentator, of course, um, royal um, biographer, royal uh, correspondent for many, many, many years, decades. I don't wish to be unkind, Jenny, but I mean, you are a bit of a veteran here. So thank you very much for joining us and I appreciate your time. Um, it's been a bit of an odd week, hasn't it? Prince Harry appearing in court has been in for two days. He's now no longer on the stand giving evidence. Um, but it's in a bit, it seems like it's all been a bit harrowing for him. Well, I think it has. I think it's been very difficult. I think I've never been in a witness box, but I think to be under intense scrutiny um, of every aspect of his life, really, for a day and a half has been tough. And many of the articles that were being scrutinised, you know, go back a very long time. Mm. Some he actually admitted he hadn't read at the time. Yeah. Uh, he said in court that he found the whole thing very distressing. And uh, the last words of his, his own barrister to him was, how are you feeling after all of this? And he apparently almost was on the verge of tears. Right. His voice cracked and he said, it's a lot. So it's been tough for him. Yes, I think so. And I mean, those who uh, don't have much sympathy for him say, well, you know, he put himself in there. He was the one that brought the case. He was the one that wanted to do it. Um, but I wonder whether he wasn't quite prepared for what that was going to end up actually being like. No, I think the forensic detail that he was subjected to was really hard. But also, you know, I think it's quite courageous. I, I think it's brave of him to stand up for what he believes in, the injustices he feels have plagued him uh, all his life by the vile media following him. Um, and many, many people, 90% of people settle out of court. His own brother has apparently settled out of court. They don't Put themselves through this but he was prepared to do so and i think we have to say the man is courageous for that yes or, or foolhardy one of the two um one of the things that is said uh, in the papers this morning in the times is that he said he went to court for megan because one of the reasons he went was to try and stop all the hate that he feels is directed both at he and her um and has been over the course of time but of course again it depends on which side of the fence you look at and where you come from. Because when Meghan first came into the royal family and first became his girlfriend and then his wife, there was a great deal of sort of affection and love for the two of them. But it kind of changed a little bit um, as, as their relationship changed with the royal family, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, he said, yes, he wanted to stop the hate and intrusion into Meghan's life. Uh, and we know how strongly he feels about that. Um, I mean, an awful lot of personal details came up, not only, um, well, not really about Meghan, but about his relationship with Chelsea Davey, with whom he, he was boyfriend-girlfriend for many, many years, a fiery relationship. But, I mean, he says that he, they found a device under Chelsea's car. Um, and I have no doubt they did. The issue throughout all of this was, yes, your life has been made hell, quite frankly, by my profession and your profession. We can't get away from it. Sometimes I think maybe we should feel ashamed of ourselves. We do put celebrities and royals through hell sometimes. Yes, that's always true. But what you've got to prove here in court is that it was, in this case, the mirror journalists who intruded and acted illicitly. Um, and I don't think that his team really landed a punch on that. Yes. But well, I do think is... maybe the judge was reasonably sympathetic towards him because towards the end, almost to the end, the judge who didn't ask, didn't have to ask Harry anything, 
chose to ask him about part of his witness statement uh, on which there'd been very little attention at all, which was um, possible interception of his voicemail by the fact that you used to be able to see whether the voicemail had been listened to previously. Mm. And there was a little icon to show that it was new. And the judge asked Harry directly, um, when did that start happening to you? Right. And Harry said, from the moment I got a mobile phone. Mm. And when did it stop, said the judge? He said, it never stopped. And I think the fact that the judge chose to pinpoint that area of possible evidence shows that he may be persuaded that on the balance of probabilities, Harry has a case. This is a civil case. It's a balance of probability. He does not have to mm. prove beyond mm. all reasonable doubt that his phone was hacked or there was illicit gathering yeah. of his material. But he doesn't seem to have any knowledge, actual knowledge of, of it happening. I mean, he thinks it happened and he, he sort of almost wants it to have happened, but that's not necessarily enough perhaps for a judge to make that conclusion um, legal and legally binding either. Because you would imagine if that was diff uh, sort of given as an opinion, that Mirror Group would probably appeal it anyway, wouldn't they? Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and that is the issue. I mean, I, I've no doubt that uh, that Harry has a strong case here, but is the case against the Mirror? Because time and again, the beast, as he's known, Andrew Green, mm. who was representing NGN, uh, pushed back saying, yeah, OK, that story came out. How can you prove it was the mirror journalist? Look, it was in the Daily yeah. Mail a couple of days ago. It was in the Sun. Um, it came from palace sources, all legitimate sources. Right. And that's where they didn't really make, land a punch. So right. I think it's it's doubtful that he'll win you know, But of course, he, he only has to win one. There were 33 yeah. articles up here uh, for scrutiny. He only has to prove that one was illicitly mm. obtained, and he's one part of his case. And you know as well as I do, because you were working in the days before mobile phones existed, I remember coming back to Fleet Street from America and being given a mobile phone, no idea what to do with it. Um, but, you know, there were lots of royal stories that got leaked from the palace and from all sorts of other places before phones were ever, mobile phones were ever invented. You know, so I mean, he sort of gives the impression in court that the only way a journalist gets stories is illicitly getting them by some kind of electronic eavesdropping, which is simply not true. Uh, that's true, uh, yeah. Um, I, I think it's any Ill illicit news gathering, I know, going through rubbish bins yeah. or the rest of it. Um, but, yeah, a lot, a lot, according to Harry, is pinned on the mobile phones. And, you know, he may be right. Look back at, oh, gosh, Camilla Gate, the, the conversations between Camilla and Charles, yeah. uh, uh, Squidgy Gate, the conversation between Diana and James Gilby. I mean, you know, phones were intercepted, I've absolutely no doubt, but were they intercepted by the mirror? That's the yes. issue here. Well, I think in those cases, they were intercepted by the security services and then somebody leaked them to the papers. So, I mean, good, goodness well, knows. But I wonder whether David Sherborne should take some um, responsibility here as well, because we know he likes a, a high-profile client. We know he likes a, a bit of grandstanding. Um, and I wonder whether, given how Harry was affected by all of this, and I'm talking about the actual court case, whether he might have been better advised to say, are you really sure you want to go through with this? Are you really sure that you want to put yourself through this? Well, he may have asked that. And I personally, I, I know Harry found it hard, but I think he stood up well. I thought he would lose his temper. He's an angry man. We know yeah. that. He, actually he seems very unhappy, doesn't he? For a man who claims to be happier than he's ever been in his life, he doesn't seem very happy. Well, he's not very happy when he's confronted with the media at any time. And he's not very happy back in, back in the UK. I'm not quite sure where he is now, whether he's on his way back to the States. I think when he gets back into the arms of his beloved wife, he will be happy. I hope he is. I think that's what people want for him. They want Harry to be happy. And, you know, he claimed in, in his witness statement, I think it was, that there'd been hostility towards him 
from the day he was born. And that's just not true, is it? There was a huge affection for him. Yeah, and course. I think there's a residual affection. And, and, and also, and I mean, to be honest, being called the Playboy Prince, I mean, it's not exactly um, an insult, is it? And I mean, when he's photographed walking around uh, in a Las Vegas hotel room playing pool naked with some strippers, I mean, we all found that quite endearing. And it wasn't in any way, uh, the, the, the story wasn't published in order to destroy him. He sort of seems obsessed with the fact that journalists want to destroy him. That's the very last thing that journalists want to do, because for a while he was very much box office. He was, he was, but I'm not sure that anyone could happily sustain um, or put up uh, with that level of publicity. I won't call it intrusion, but publicity into their lives. I mean, I think it's a tough gig being born royal. It really is. Celebrities choose to be celebrities. They've got to take the intrusion in their lives. But Harry, you know, it was his destiny. And I think essentially he wants to be left alone. Um, and I think it has affected his mental health. And I think he is fragile. Um, and I think he's been very brave to mm. stand up for what he believes in. Maybe. I mean, I think there were other ways of, of, of living his life, though. I mean, I remember when he was in and out of bougies. And, and, you know, my daughter actually was always in and out of bougies trying to find him because um, she wanted to go out with him, basically. But, I mean, you know, he wasn't exactly hiding away. And I think if you're in the public eye... Um, we all know celebrities who can stay out of it if they wish to. You know, if you don't want to be seen, you don't go to the Ivy. You know, there's plenty of restaurants in London you can go to where there aren't any paparazzi outside. You know, but he was always going to places where the paps were. No, and well, he said in court that he was behaving in the way that he felt the media had painted him, and if there was going to be painted that way, he may as well do the crime, is what he said. Um, so he's blaming the media again. Yes, I. I mean, I think, I think, I'll tell you what, I think he suffers from blaming everybody else for everything that's ever happened to him. And it's all somebody else's fault. And he doesn't bear any responsibility for any of it. Yeah, I, I was going to say it is victimhood and he's very good at being a victim. But I've still got residual affection for him. And I think he has been a victim of a lot, a very unhappy adolescence because of his mother's death and, and the rest of it. Um, so personally, I rather like Piers Morgan, wish him well. Yes. So now what happens? He's gone, I presume he goes back. Um, he's not going to be, we're told there's not going to be a verdict in this case till about September or something like that. Um, so does he go back to Montecito and keep quiet as we were told he was going to do? I'm sure he'll carry on with some of his work, some of his campaigns. Um, I would think that it would be advisable if he kept a bit of a low profile. <laughs> and they have been actually recently keeping fair, they have been keeping quite yeah, a low they have. profile. Well, she, she's, been, she's been remarkably uh, low profile for her. Yeah. Enjoy the kids. Enjoy the sunshine. Enjoy your money. Uh, enjoy your freedom. Yeah. Um, and stop whining. Maybe I'll... stop whining. Yeah, absolutely. And stop, stop trashing your own family. I hope they've stopped. I right. don't know. Uh, one week we read that he's actually, they're, they're involved in a new Netflix documentary. Mm. The, the next we read that uh, absolutely no, they've said all there is to be said. Right. But we've heard that one before. And do you think that he saw anybody from his family while he was here? Well, I'm slightly intrigued by the fact that there have been no sightings for him, as far as I know, at Heathrow. So is he still here? If he mm. is still here, um, he's only a few hundred yards from his brother. That's an unlikely meeting. Um, but maybe with Dad, you know, maybe. I, I live in hope. Yeah, we shall see. Well, listen, great to talk to you, Jenny. Thank you very much indeed. Jenny Bond, the royal commentator uh, on the, the state of uh, Prince Harry. I wonder whether he made a mistake by doing what he's just done. I wonder whether uh, he now wishes he hadn't done it. Um, who knows? But he doesn't seem a very happy guy, does he? He really doesn't. Uh, this is Talk TV. Coming up, we'll bring you more uh, on the lawlessness of our streets right here in Britain. 
Fast Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We are in the midst, ladies and gentlemen, uh, of quite a show. I'll tell you why. A lot of people calling in because a lot of you want to talk to me about lawless Britain, about the fact that our streets are no longer safe to walk around, uh, that people now are, are seeing more and more uh, lawlessness wherever they go. We've just shown you in the last hour some videos, one of a dog attack in Lambeth, which is horrendous and horrific. We'll show it to you again uh, because it's really important, I think, that people see what is going on out there, this growth of XL bully dogs, uh, the people who can't, can't control them. There's a woman in hospital as a result of being attacked by these three dogs jumping all over her. Absolutely horrendous stuff. Then from there to Essex, where outside of a school, a secondary school, uh, a mass brawl is taking place. People getting punched, kicked, head-butted, you know, people uh, kicking people when they're on the ground. Just extraordinary stuff. And, and this is everyday stuff, ladies and gentlemen. You go to Oxford Street, you'll see gangs of sort of feral youth running in and out of shops, stealing stuff, running out again. Uh, at your local supermarket, you see people shoplifting because they say they can't afford the food. You know, we do seem to be living in a time when the police have totally lost it, lost control of our cities, lost control of our society. And an awful lot of people are not very happy about it. Get your bike stolen. You'll never see it again. 85% of bike thefts never even have uh, an investigation uh, attached to them and they never find the perpetrators. The police are now saying on the front page of the Daily Mail this morning they're going to be attending all burglaries and that's breaking news apparently for some where they should have been doing it anyway, shouldn't they? Let's talk to Isabel Oakshot, Talk TV's international editor. Um, Isabel, very good morning to you. Thank you for joining us. Um, I've had, this, I've had yeah. this feeling for a while... Uh, and I talk to many people who seem to have the same feeling that there's a sort of edge to everything at the moment, that everywhere you go, you feel kind of as though almost anything could happen. And I don't mean to be in any way, I'm not talking Britain down. I'm not trying to make out that, you know, we are um, in a sort of terrible spiral of, of despair that we can't get out of. But we do appear to be in a bad period of time for sort of, you know, what I would call our society. I'm so glad that we're talking about this today, and I'm not surprised you've got lots of people calling in. Um, the coincidence is that I um, was on my way just to, to talk TV last night and doing a journey that I, I normally do, actually, just around Vauxhall Station. Um, and for the Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade first time 
I felt really quite uneasy yeah. around Vauxhall Station last night. Right. There are a lot of kind of honestly quite shady looking characters and I just thought something has changed in the last I mean it's really happened quite recently yeah. um that has tipped the balance from you know that feeling of unease particularly as a woman uh, being something that you're only going to get at a particular time of night in particular settings yeah. the feeling that you have to have your wits about you um even in broad daylight at sort of five o'clock six o'clock yeah. in the evening the other thing I'm noticing a lot in central London, and it would be nice to think it's just central London, but I'm sure that people will have their own stories of this from all over Britain, is the amount of casual marijuana smoking yeah. and marijuana use that is everywhere on yeah. our streets. So, and I've just come from Green Park and I was just standing outside the tube there. And there was a guy right next to me just smoking yeah. weed. I get I, whenever I go to Green Park, I get that as well. There's a lot of people that's quite dodgy characters hanging around there, and that's right in the centre of Piccadilly. I mean, it's an, it's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, so what are we doing here? I mean, either we 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 should codify the fact that we're just going to let this thing be uh, openly done, and and you know we're having full tolerance of this. In which case, you know, we're going down the route of places like Seattle, where mm. you're legalising it. Or we've actually got to decide on a policy of enforcement of the law um, and the and the kind of unease of, of being in the city and, and wondering, feeling that you've always got to look over your shoulder mm. or need to have your wits about you. It's quite a new thing, I think. Yes, no, I think it is. And I'm not quite sure when it happened, but you're right. It's quite a recent thing, possibly even as recent as this year. Um, yes. To have that feeling almost everywhere. And I and also more and more people who, who, who I just sort of interact with on a daily basis saying, you know, I feel like there's a lot of ang people sort of on the edge. They're a bit angry. They're on trains kind of glaring at each other. Somebody yeah. touches somebody else. It kind of kicks off school yeah. children. You know, brawly. We've seen fights on beaches sort of every single weekend now. It's weird. It's really weird. Um, and I think that the sort of low level antisocial behaviour, um, I see it stemming a bit from an, an over tolerance, an attitude of hashtag be kind, yeah. let's put up with anything. Um, this is a kind of thing where as a commuter, I experience this a lot. Somebody will put their music on very loudly in a train carriage, yeah. you know, or be watching loud videos. Right. It's absolute pain and very antisocial for everyone else in the carriage. Nobody, except frankly me, ever challenges it. And if you do challenge it and politely say, look, would you mind, yeah. you know, I'm trying to do other things here, um, would you mind turning that down or putting some headphones on? You, can, you do risk getting an absolute barrage of abuse. Yeah. Nobody's standing up for it. Now, my point is that unless we challenge the low-level antisocial behaviour, things soon escalate into much worse mm. antisocial behavior and you've got a society that is too scared or too quote tolerant yes to actually enforce collectively what we would all like in terms of standards of behavior yes i mean i take myself back to new york in the 80s when i lived there for about nine ten years and under david dinkins who was then the mayor it became a really dangerous city to live in um you know crime street crime was up there was a lot of homeless people on the streets. There was a lot of mental patients on the streets because some of the um, you know, institutions were, were shut down. And it was a really awful place to be at a particular time. And then Giuliani came in and fixed it all. And he did that by literally just policing the streets, by changing the, the, the social behaviour. Um, 
at some points, actually, I remember talking to taxi drivers. He said, Giuliani's ruining New York. He now he wants to do away with the hot dogs. And he doesn't want the guys selling them on the streets. But he managed to get New York back. And now it's gone again, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. but, but I wonder right. whether we have to do something similar here. So we have an opportunity, um, which is that there's a mayoral election coming up in the not too distant mm. future next year. Um, and I, I don't want to be in, in the slightest bit party political about this. I'm not a member of any political party. But do people honestly think that continuing to vote for Sadiq Khan is going to result in things getting any better? Because it is under uh, this Labour mayor that things have got to the state they're in. Yeah. You know, he manifestly failed to make anything better on the, in terms of the safety of streets and knife crime and so mm. on, whilst all the while uh, rabbiting on ad, ad nauseum about air quality um, above ground. By the way, the air quality where most of us travel in, in central London in the underground is uh, completely toxic compared to anything you're going to get in the fresh air. Don't hear him talking about that. So somehow or other maybe there could be a movement that coalesces around an alternative to Sadiq Khan. I mean, the Tories haven't really put up any anyone inspirational yet. So let's see if anyone comes forward. Yeah, well, they've got a few uh, irons in the fire on that front. So a couple of them don't look too bad to me, but we shall see. Speaking of uh, party political, let's talk about Rishi Sunak. He's over in America. Um, I, I, I think, and I don't know whether this is true, and I'm, I'm sure people will say this is a bit trivial, uh, there was a funny story that he was going to throw the first ball out at a baseball game and then suddenly it turned out he wasn't going to. And I think he probably did the right thing there because that's quite a hard thing to do. I remember George Bush doing it and making a complete mess of it. It's not worth it, is it? I mean, no. if you're a advisor, you just say absolutely do not go there. You know, any of those kinds of stunts, you've got to get them right. Otherwise, it, it backfires horribly and it never it can never leave you if you get it badly wrong. Um, so I think it's this trip is interesting. I mean, Rishi has tried to come up with a headline which is a bit different and been quite successful on that with this initiative um, for the UK to host the world's first ever conference on artificial intelligence yeah. safety. Um, it's a really interesting subject, this um, threat posed by artificial intelligence. Quite hard to kind of wrap your head around because you've got a lot of conflicting voices and quite a lot of alarmism about, you know, robots could kill us, right. putting it bluntly. Yeah. Uh, and equally on the other side, people saying, well, hang on a minute, this is all a bit um, overinflated and actually these things are going to do more good than harm. I think it's super interesting, you know, when you've got some of the world's most intelligent, successful people saying this is a serious threat. I think we have to um, consider that quite carefully. Yes, I think so. I just find it slightly odd that suddenly this is a thing, you know, and I know that it's because some people in the AI world and the people who have sort of built a lot of this stuff are now warning about it as well. But it just suddenly seems to be like everybody's talking about AI and how dangerous it's going to be. And it's not as if these systems have only just been developed no. now. I think the, the point that they're making is that the um, rapidity of progress has accelerated massively in the last few months. And that may be why there's suddenly a whole hue and cry about it. Mm. I mean, intelligent weapons system development has been going on for years. I remember writing about in, in a book I wrote on the state of the armed forces in the UK, right. uh, about some kind of automatic, uh, a robot that can fire guns, basically. Um, so this stuff has been around for quite a, quite a while. Um, but I think it's a good place for the UK to be positioning itself 
as a, I hate the expression, but a kind of thought leader, yeah. um, anything like this. I mean, this is a sort of thing that if it were an, just an add-on to an otherwise tremendously successful repositioning of global Britain post-Brexit, you think, yes, this is fantastic, uh, but it doesn't go to the heart of all our problems here in the UK. Uh, it's just a bauble, which Rishi Sunak has painted uh, at the top of a um, a very uh, shabby dying Christmas tree that is the UK um, to try to distract us. <laughs> it does feel a bit like that. You know, he's kind of, I wouldn't say striding across the world because uh, he looks diminutive even next to the mascot from the baseball team, I'm afraid. Um, but he's just sort of, you, you can't quite believe everything he's selling, can you? He's not, you know, he's got this, as somebody described him the other day to me, he's got this kind of Goldman Sachs look about him. You know, he, he looks cool. He's got the right sort of clothing for every possible um, adventure that he's going to take himself to but yet it's kind of an empty vessel that you're talking to well th this is the what this is one of the very few things that he's talking about that he can actually deliver i mean how hard can it be to organize a global conference on ai in britain right. i think this is one thing that rishi can actually come good on um a lot a lot more easily than he can come good on his promise uh, continually repeated but never delivered to actually <laughs> the migrant boats and so on and so forth yes. so, i mean to be honest organizing a con it's a bit like when i once had an, uh, a, a very angry jack mcconnell the first minister of scotland telling me that i was being too hard on him at the scottish mirror and he said he said look at all the achievements i've got and he listed all these achievements one of them was setting up a conference for something and i went that's not an achievement setting up a conference <laughs> is what people do uh, when they've got nothing else to say setting it up is no good <laughs> doing something is an achievement it's basically a meeting. That's what it is. Yeah. You set up a meeting and making a lot of uh, song and a dance about it. Um, whatever happened to Jack McConnell? I think you and I were probably reporting on Scottish yes. politics. Well, do you know, time. he's actually quite a good friend of mine now. He's in the House of Lords. So, if you ever, yeah, yeah. So, so I see him every now and again, once in a while. But uh, we'll come back to that. Stay where you are, if you wouldn't mind. We're going to come back to um, the, the Oliver Dowden-inspired secret organisation that was keeping tabs on all sorts of people, including probably Isabel Oakeshott and probably me. Uh, this is Talk TV. On DAB+, Plus, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican. Mike Graham. We're talking to Isabel Oakeshott. And Isabel, before we get on to uh, Oliver Dowden and his secret misinformation unit, um, just a developing story over in France in a place called Annecy, southeast France. Uh, authorities have now said that the attacker who has stabbed a group of children, six nursery-aged children, we think, about three years of age each, two of them uh, are in critical condition, uh, is now being named as a Syrian national. Um, so as, a, as, as horrible a story as it is, that will become a massive story now because, of course, he will be an asylum seeker of some kind who has come through France uh, and is probably on his way to Calais to come here. Uh, um, um, well, I'd like to say undoubtedly, we don't know, but, yeah, very likely. I mean, why has he come to, the, to France? Uh, you know, th this goes to the heart of the debate about whether all these people who are coming over are desperate people in uh, in deserving need of our of our compassion. Mm. I'm afraid they're not. No. You know, quite a lot of people who are coming over here from questionable origins have very questionable intentions. Right. Um, they shouldn't be kept uh, in the UK or anywhere else for two years while the government decides whether they have a case or mm. not. And aside from anything else, in, in addition to all the other things that we don't know about many of them, many of them may have mental health problems, as this guy may have, in which case, you know, we don't want you, thanks. 
Well, I mean, in a sense, uh, it's almost uh, by definition that by the time they get here, they probably develop mental health problems if they didn't have them to begin with. And if they really are fleeing from trauma, um, then it's very likely they will have mental health problems, which... Uh, need to be looked at. And at the moment, we don't even have the capacity uh, to provide decent mental health services for the population who are entitled to be here. Uh, so it's not really an ideal situation. And as you say, we don't know where a lot of these people come from. I mean, um, our, our colleague Richard uh, Tice, who confronted a number of the asylum seekers who were protesting about the quality of their accommodation in central London the other day, uh, spoke to one and uh, the guy looked distinctly shifty when yeah. Richard asked him where he's from. He, he replied Iraq, which I think is just now the standard response right. to any question uh, about where people are from. I would have liked to have drilled into that a bit. Where exactly from yes. Iraq? Now, what exactly was your route? And did you leave your wife and children, yeah. your sister, your mother? Right. Yeah, I mean, these are all questions that, you know, apparently if you want to ask them, it makes you some kind of racist bigot because you should just be believed. I mean, who on earth in any world believes everything that they're told by anyone? You know, it's like somebody knocking on your front door saying, you know, I've come from um, the gas, uh, the gas company. I've come in to read your meter, but he's not actually wearing the uniform and he's not actually giving you any identification. You wouldn't let him into the house. No, absolutely not. So um, a real real source of concern, this, and absolutely not going away. And so in addition to organising his AI meeting, um, Rishi Sunak might want to turn a bit more of his attention mm. to that. Yes, I think so. Let's have a little chat about this uh, secret government unit uh, that we were all apparently um, being monitored by. <laughs> I suspect you were on the list, as, as I was, and as Molly Kingsley was. Oliver Dowden's um, misinformation unit has now been disbanded, we're pleased to, to hear. But I wonder what they, what they were doing and exactly what they sort of learned or gleaned or where the information is stored. Well, I mean, what we do know is that the, the government very definitely took a decision to actually employ a unit in number 10 that normally deals with counter-terror operations. Yeah. Uh, to deal with people like you and me and Molly Kingsley and Julia Hartley Brewer and other people who simply wanted to have a debate about the uh, policy response to COVID. Uh, many of the points that we were making then, uh, which were decried as disinformation, are now being accepted as having been absolutely right. Mm. So it gives me a little bit of pleasure um, to be right honest, but I'd much rather that the whole nation hadn't had to pay the price of it. Um, and I think that the suppression of legitimate, sensible, very necessary debate uh, about what was going on in terms of the seizing of emergency powers and, and the whole um, excessive response to the COVID threat uh, was one of the most sinister aspects of the um, COVID response. And we, we need to do whatever we can to make sure that debate with the compliance of the social media companies is never again shut down in that way. Mm. Social media companies have got a lot to answer for. And as you know, they're still doing it. There are certain topics that you're just not allowed to present any alternative view on. And that includes climate change, by mm. the way. If you say, actually, well, the weather's changing and I'm not totally sure it's all man-made and so on, um, you are quite quickly removed from yes. a number of and, they, and you're sort of decried as a climate denier. I mean, we're having a lot of these conversations at the moment because of the, the current smoke 
filled North America problem where Canada's got a lot of wildfires going on, which will probably turn out to have been set by some mad arsonists, right, rather than being set because of climate change. Um, but apparently the smoke is travelling all the way down into sort of New York and into parts of the northern areas of America. Um, and of course, if you question that it might not have anything to do with climate change, then you're immediately a crank. Well, I mean, we nearly went down this route on the talk last night. Um, Kevin uh, O'Sullivan, our colleague, was was um, taking on some of the rest of the panel and I decided I just could not face it. Um, <laughs> he, he's absolutely right. And, you know, the suppression of debate um, puts us in a very weak position uh, when we do all our kind of moral superiority yeah. over um, other regimes in the world where they don't have a free press. Well, I would really question the extent to which we do have free debate in this country. We actually just don't. No. Uh, we so really don't. To, to, to pontificate from our high horse. No, exactly right. Isabel, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Isabel Oakshot, Talk TV's international editor there uh, with her take on all manner of things. And we're going to talk now uh, to Lord Matt Ridley, um, of course, about some of those things as well. Um, Matt, very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Very good to see you. Nice to see you. Uh, while we were on the subject of the misinformation unit, um, I don't know whether you were on it, um, but we were all a bit shocked. I mean, we knew that, that, that there was a sort of Neil O'Brien inspired sort of COVID policing of some of what we were doing here at Talk TV, but we didn't actually realise there was a specific unit set up by Oliver Dowden um, until last week or the beginning of this week. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? I think it's absolutely shocking. Um, mm. uh, I think we knew that some of this was going on, but the degree to which... Um, elected politicians who are supposed to be representing uh, the ordinary people uh, instead represented the interests of the civil servants, of the uh, uh, establishment uh, officials, uh, and said, what we want is to shut down debate, uh, uh, in, in, impose policies that we think are right, uh, and um, uh, attack people or suppress people who we don't think are right. Now, we knew during the pandemic, that there were mistaken things being said from that podium in number 10, because we could tell within weeks that they were wrong. Now, that didn't mean that they were evil. It just meant that we ought to be able to challenge them. And at the end of 2021, when the scientists tried to push um, the UK government into a further lockdown over Christmas, if you remember, yeah. They came out with very strong predictions that there would be um, 2,000, no, 6,000 deaths a day right. in January if they didn't. Boris Johnson held his nerve against that. There wasn't a lockdown and there were nothing like, there no. wasn't even one twentieth as many deaths. So we had good examples of where um, you did need challenge, you did need debate, you did need to... To, to hear both sides of the argument and and there was a strong attempt to prevent that happening it really was and of course we all remember that at the time they their excuse for doing that was that well we should all be relieved that that didn't happen well no um because if you'd locked down and people had lost even more than we now know that we did lose um that would have been a dreadful um, sort of miscalculation and it would have been a terrible um, mistake because we now know also from the lockdown report that, that came out earlier on in the week from the IEA uh, that the 400,000 prediction of deaths was actually so far out that it turned out only to be less than 2,000. Well, I think that lockdown report is very good. I think it's done by uh, seriously good academics mm. in, in Denmark, Sweden and uh, the US. Yeah. Um, uh, I noticed the Science Media Centre trying to rubbish it, lining up a few establishment scientists to say, oh, this is just from the IEA, they would say that anyway. Right. 
Um, well, I, no, I'm sorry, that's not the way it works in a free society. Uh, you debate um, reports on their merits, yeah. not on who Also, wrote I read a piece which was written by some guy in Forbes magazine online who was trying to rubbish it on the basis that, oh, yeah, all the right-wingers are claiming that this is being produced by Johns Hopkins University. It hasn't. It's been produced by one professor. At, well, what's, so what? He's a professor at Johns Hopkins University. Why would you trash that? Steve Hankey's a very distinguished economist, and he's he's uh, got an extremely distinguished academic record. Yeah. Um, uh, just because he holds this view doesn't mean you should outlaw him. And this is what's happening the whole time these days on lots of different issues. Certain people say, this is right, that is wrong, anyone who says otherwise should be suppressed, mm. or is in somehow uh, an illegitimate person who shouldn't be listened to. I mean, I've been called a climate denier uh, for 20 years now. Right. Uh, I've covered climate change for nearly 40 years since I was science editor of The Economist in the 80s. Uh, I'm not a denier. I'm a lukewarmer. I mm. say that, that, that climate change is real. It's happening and we probably need to do something about it. But we mustn't overreact. And it's not happening as badly as some people say. Mm. And the extremist solutions are uh, going to do more harm than good. Now, that seems to me a middle of the road position. <laughs> but I'm constantly portrayed as an extremist and suppressed. Yes. You know, well, we now BBC live in a world, Matt, don't we? We now live in a world where you're an extremist if you say um, you don't think a woman can have a penis. So, I mean, that's the, that's the madness that we're, we're surrounded by. Because I was, I was reading a piece, somebody sent me a piece, because the Just Stop Oil Brigade have been out and about, of course, again. Um, and that girl, Phoebe, who was arrested, was dragged off by the police again because she made uh, she broke the, 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 um, the, the, the agreement that she made with the probation people not to go to any street protest again or something. But she was basically talking about millions of people dying and, you know, the world burning up before our very eyes. And I just said it's a, it's a joke, you know, some of this madness that they come out with. And so I was sent an article from The Guardian from about a month ago in which it's, it quotes a man by the name of Matthew England, a climate scientist at the University of New South Wales, um, who looks at the temperature of the ocean going up by 0.1 of a degree um, since the start of, uh, since about 10 years ago or something. And he says the current trajectory looks like it's headed off the charts smashing previous records well it's not actually off the charts it's a very small increase which may or may not be temporary well uh, we are in a warming period that means records get broken yeah. of course it does nobody's denying that but by the way uh, the, the warming is happening considerably slower than was forecast in the 1990s we were told to expect 0.3 degrees of warming per decade uh, plus or minus 0.2 right. uh, we've actually seen um below the bottom of that range. We've seen 0.17 degrees right. of in the 30 plus years since then. So anybody who tells you it's warming faster than expected is wrong. Right. It is warming. It is an issue. It's not warming as fast as expected. Um, we've got time to deal with it. We mustn't uh, cut off our nose to spite our face and do something that actually does more harm, uh, which we are doing. A lot of the policies we're taking are going to cause real economic and, and moral harm to people um, uh, on the basis of these extreme uh, suggestions mm. from Extinction Rebellion and people like that. Extinction Rebellion took me to Ipso for an article I wrote in The Times the other day about walruses and sea ice. Uh, I proved that I was right and they were wrong by uh, with lots of uh, data, um, uh, and they were uh, humiliated. You know, right. they were completely wrong. 
but if they'd got uh, if they if they'd gone the other way they'd have been crowing about it as it is it's not it's not an issue no exactly right but the trouble with all these net zero sort of maneuvers uh, is that it's almost like net zero is the new lockdown isn't it because we know from that report that we've just talked about that that the lockdown had terrible economic uh, effects terrible mental health effects on the on the population as well and net zero like you were saying you know it's all very well to talk about possibly doing something about climate change, but t charging people 15 quid to drive into London isn't going to change anything, is it? Uh, no. And uh, <laughs> there was an interesting report the other day showing that the air quality is far worse in the tube. Yeah, of course. Know, you know, we blow our nose and you come out the tube and it's black um, than it is on the streets. So if you want to do something about air quality in London, then then that's where you should start. Yeah. Um, no, net zero is responsible for some truly horrifying, damaging policies that are being pushed through in which the government is picking winners in terms of technologies, things like heat pumps. I talked to a plumber the other day who says he's taking out two heat pumps uh, a week right. now from people who um, uh, put them in and discovered they didn't really work. Uh, so, um, you know, we've... We really are committing economic suicide based on net zero at the time. Now, when it when they pushed through net zero as a 2050 commitment in Parliament, I stood up in the House of Lords and I was pretty well the only one to do so, saying this is a serious mistake. Please, let's think mm. again. Yeah. Um, let's be flexible about this. Let's have some aspirations. But if you make this a legal target, you will just reward the rich at the expense of the poor, the people who are best at grabbing uh, the government's attention with their half-baked technologies, uh, and they won't work, etc., etc. That's exactly what's happening. Yeah, it is um, a, a hiding to nothing, I think you'll, uh, you'll agree with me on. Thank you very much indeed. Matt Ridley there, former Conservative peer, uh, on the subject of net zero and what the latest manoeuvrings are, because we've got all sorts of stories coming our way this morning. Uh, one from um, uh, The Telegraph, which says a Labour council is now raising parking fees to drive out diesel cars from its roads, because there is this crusade now, anti-car crusade. It is extraordinary. 0344 499 1000. A couple of texts to read out. Terry and Slough says, here we go again, Mike. We've got to be world leaders in artificial intelligence and first to reach net zero. Instead of trying to be first in everything, how about the politicians sort out the mess this country is in? I'll tell you one thing we're not first in, putting British homeless people before asylum seekers and illegal immigrants. I think that's a very, very good point. And uh, Ivan in Buckinghamshire says, Mike, what a great guy Norman Brennan is. He speaks for the nation. We need politicians who speak like that, not the idiots we have in Parliament at the moment. Uh, Rishi needs to talk to Norman rather than to Joe Biden, says another text as well. Right now, let's talk to Alp Mehmet, who's from Migration Watch, of course, because uh, there's a story doing the rounds this morning that the migration problem we have in this country could actually mean by 2046, there could be another 16 million people living here. I know that sounds like a long way off, um, but we're basically adding every five years, we're adding something like uh, three to four million people. I think in the last 10 years, we've had an extra 7 million people um, basically joining the population, most of them coming here as immigrants. 0344 499 1000. Let's find out what else got to say about that. Alpa, very good morning to you. Good morning to you, sir. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. This is, a, this is a rather large figure, isn't it, this 16 million figure? And this is your own uh, think tank, Migration Watch, that's come up with this particular figure. Tell us about it. Well, yeah, it is a large figure, um, but that's where we are. That's the reality. The, the net migration of 606,000, which in fact could have been a lot higher had the government uh, used the previous methodology for calculating it, but 606,000 
is massive. Mm. And what we've done is looked to see what that means for population growth. And the numbers that it's going to grow by in the next 25 years, the population is going to grow by, frankly, um, it's, it's the lowest that it would grow if we were to uh, continue at the present rate. We also looked at what that means for housing, for example. Mm. Um, if, again, we continue with this rate of uh, net migration, we're going to need many, many more houses than we are building at the moment. We're going to be running to fall steadily behind with regard to housing. If the government thinks that we are somehow going to go back to net migration of 245,000 in the medium term, as they put it, over the next five years, they're in dreamland. Yeah. They're absolutely fantasizing. There is absolutely no way with the present system that we've got in place that we would fall back to those sort of numbers. The likelihood is that we will continue at this very high, and, and 245,000, frankly, is not small. That, too, is way too high. But to continue at four, 500,000 a year is going to be so damaging in all sorts of ways. And housing is one of the areas where we will never build enough houses to meet demand at these sort of rates. Well, we haven't got enough houses now. And, I mean, one of the lines in, exactly. the, in the report says you need 18 Birmingham-sized cities. Um, basically to build in order to house everybody? Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, well, depending on which, uh, what's called the total fertility rate yes. uh, is used, um, depending on that, um, it's, we, we calculate something between 15 and 18 new uh, Birmingham's. But let's just look at 15 Birmingham's, what that means the number of people that you've got to provide for, not just housing, but the NHS, schools, road congestion, you name it, and it's impacted by this sort of gargantuan increase in population that is driven by migration. Yeah. That's why we've got to do something about it. Yeah, exactly right. And I mean, today we've got news, terrible news coming in from France. And if you've seen it, Alp, um, of six nursery school aged children around about three years of age, uh, having been stabbed randomly uh, by what looks like a, a Syrian refugee. We don't know exactly what the circumstances of, of his status is. Uh, I presume it's a he. Um, yeah, he attacked the children, some in pushchairs, as they visited a park in southeast France, a place called Annecy. Um, you know, this, I was talking to his Oak shot, this highlights the problem that we have with an awful lot of um, the people who are coming. We don't know really anything about them. We have no clue where they've come from. We have no clue what they've done, whether they've got mental health issues, whether they've got criminal records. We just don't know. Well, that's uh, an exceptionally good point, Mike, if I may say so. I hadn't heard that news yet. Uh, that that It's just shocking, isn't yeah, it? it's awful. When you think of, of kiddies defenceless being attacked in that way, it just makes me want to weep, frankly. Yeah. But what we're talking about today is legal migration. Yeah. The, the fact is that with illegal migration, which is also a huge problem, we don't know who we are 
bringing in to the country who were allowing in to the country. And that, to me, seems like madness, frankly, that here we are simply because people say, I am whoever and I am fleeing persecution, let me in. We say, uh, well, we can't prove it, but okay, because we can't disprove it. Yeah. You can come in. And anyone and everyone who seeks to get in that way is being allowed in. That is madness. Yeah. And it certainly doesn't serve the interests of people in this country and it seems in France as well. Yeah, it's absolutely dreadful. Terrible, terrible story. But listen, Alp, thanks very much indeed. Alp Mehmet there uh, with the latest on uh, projections from Migration Watch of how many people uh, will be coming here in the due uh, course of the next 10 years or 20 years. 16 million by 2046 is what they estimate. And at which point they will have to build more cities actually to house everybody in. 0344 499 1000. Susan says, Mike, I fear very greatly for the safety of people in this country. What happened to the lady in the park was and is truly terrifying. A dog attack can happen to anyone, anywhere, innocently going for an innocent walk. This is a terrible video which we're going to show you uh, again before the end of the show because I think it's important that we all see what is going on out there. These XL bully dogs are an absolute menace. They're an absolute tragedy waiting to happen and somebody's going to have to do something about them and soon this is talk tv across the uk online and on dab the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio if you enjoyed that be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1 monday to friday on talk radio via dab online or via the talk radio app if you have an opinion on the stories we cover we'd love to hear from you call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at talk radio during the show to have your say the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.